0: Welcome to the sports medicine podcast hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode will be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine.
1: Hey guys and welcome to another episode of the sports medicine podcast. I hope everyone is enjoying the show so far. Again, we encourage your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, please reach out. The email is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all that. We've got some fantastic episodes in the pipeline, so stay tuned for more on those. And if you'd like to stay up to date on everything, follow us on uh, social media. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or interested in sponsoring an episode or a topic for for the show, please reach out to us and we'll be happy to talk to you more about that. So today is our fifth episode, and this is actually going to be part one in a series of two episodes focusing on concussion in sport. Concussions are certainly getting a lot of attention right now, both in the sports medicine literature, but also in the media. Our understanding of concussions and the protocols around the management of concussions is changing so rapidly right now that it's hard to keep up to date with everything. Uh, something that got me thinking about doing an episode uh, for, for, for our podcast was actually a podcast that I just recently finished called Gladiator. Gladiator is by a group called Wandry and it focuses on the life and times of Aaron Hernandez. Aaron was a tight end for the New England Patriots of the NFL. He played his college football at the uh, University of Florida. Um, he had signed a multimillion-dollar contract. He appeared in a Super Bowl for the Patriots. Uh, but then his, uh, his career came to an abrupt end after his arrest and conviction of one of his friends. Uh, so after he was convicted, he was sentenced to life in prison, but his, uh, his, his body was found hung in his jail cell uh, shortly after his conviction. Um, Following his death, his brain was donated to research by his family and researchers at Boston University CTE Center diagnosed Hernandez as having brain injuries consistent with CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's the chronic brain disorder disorder. Um, thought to be associated with sustaining multiple concussions. And he had stage three out of four at the time of his death. So if you haven't listened to this podcast, check it out. I think it's a good one and fairly interesting. This episode features uh, two experts in the world of concussion, Aaron Reynolds and Kayla Covert. Uh, They're both 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 locally based here in Dallas at Baylor, Scott & White's Sports Concussion Program at the Star in Frisco, Texas. Uh, Check it out online for more information. Uh, These are two individuals who have dedicated their lives to researching and the management of concussions, so they're certainly highly experienced in this area. This episode was very interesting personally for me as a sports medicine physician and someone who deals with high school, college, and professional athletes who are prone to concussion But also of how our understanding of concussion has changed uh, over time and specifically how we've changed our general approach to the management of concussions. Uh, It's certainly a lot different than what it was while I was coming through uh, sports um, about 20 years ago. Uh, Part one focuses more on some of the clinical definitions of what a concussion exactly is and how we go about diagnosing a uh, concussion. And then the second part, we get into more of the specifics around the management of concussion and some of the specifics around things like vestibular therapy and some of the ways we treat concussion today. So that's it for me. Follow us on social media to stay up to date for future episodes. Uh, And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple iTunes, which will help support the podcast down the line. Uh, Thanks, you guys, and enjoy this episode. Hey, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. Um, This episode here is going to be, I think it's going to be a series on concussion and concussion in sport. And I'm lucky to be joined by two of the experts in concussions. Um, they are located here in Dallas, uh, Aaron Reynolds and Kayla Covert. Thanks for coming, guys.
0: Thanks for having
1: us. So I know Aaron um, from the sideline of uh, Frisco ISD. I cover one of the high schools here in Frisco. Aaron is the clinical director of Baylor Scott and White Sports Concussion Program here at the Star. That's right. That's correct. So we spent a bit of time on the sideline chatting about concussions and management or treatment of athletes and so on. And I've gotten to know Aaron a little bit over the last little while. Tell us about yourself though.
2: So I am, I've been in Texas now for about a year and a half. Before that, I was up in Pittsburgh at UPMC in the UPMC sports concussion program uh, where I was for five years. And I was the fellowship director up there. Um, Before that, I was in Boston where I did grad school and my, my residency and uh, internship in clinical neuropsychology.
1: So you're a neuropsychologist.
2: I'm a neuro, Yes. So I'm a clinical psychologist okay. from grad school. And then I did three years in clinical neuropsychology. And then in Pittsburgh, I did the advanced sports neuropsychology fellowship.
1: How long is that fellowship? It's
2: supposed to be a year. I did it for about six months and then they made me faculty.
1: Okay. And then you were there for working there Five for Five years, yeah. Okay.
2: And I came here for this program. So to b- take what we do in Pittsburgh and build it here in
1: Right, because we're going to talk about what you did in Pittsburgh, because you've got the the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center sports concussion therapy protocol, I guess, a system of how you deal with these concussions, and you've sort of brought that here to to Frisco and to Dallas. Exactly. Okay, good. And how's it going? Are you liking Frisco?
2: It's going great. We love Frisco. Yeah, I have two kids, and they're loving it. It's warm.
1: Football. It's football. Texas is football down here. It's a lot of football. Yeah, yeah. Good. (laughs) Kayla. Hi. Covert vestibular physical therapist. Yes. I don't, I'm not even sure what that means <laughs>
0: um, So what I am is a physical therapist So if someone comes to me with a knee replacement or an, a torn ACL, I can treat you I don't want to treat you, but I could treat you. Okay, um, but then I have specialized training in neurology So I'm a neurologic physical therapist and then I have a subspecialty within that with it Which is looking at the vestibular system and then even more so than that it's concussion management. Okay, So, what I did was I went to PT school, did that for six years, and then I came to Pitt. That's how I met Aaron. And through Pitt, I did a residency with them. So, a total, it's about eight years of training. Okay. And then I stayed on with UPMC and worked with their concussion program.
1: So, Aaron brought Kayla down to Frisco? I did. Nice. Mm -hmm. Good. You guys are a team. (laughs) We are. We are. (laughs) I like that. So, we're going to talk about vestibular physical therapy later on when we get into the treatment of concussions, but just... Tell me a little bit about this. So when I when someone says vestibular to me, I think inner ear. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, that right?
0: Exactly. So the vestibular system is a coordination of your brain, your balance, and the apparatus in your inner ear, which helps maintain your gaze and helps maintain your balance. So a lot of people miss the inner ear part, and they just focus on the balance, which is a huge issue in today's world of concussion because they're they're missing a huge portion of the treatments for it. So it's important to understand that it's it, vestibular system captures the dizziness piece plus the balance.
1: Okay. Awesome. This is so this is going to be good. We're going to get get into that when we talk about all the management it's going to be very very interesting, I think. So this is a huge thing I think in sports medicine right now is concussions in athletes and it's all over the news for football players and protocols changing and so on. So I think it's a great topic that we're going to discuss in, in a couple of these episodes. So tell us how big of a deal this is.
2: Uh, It's a pretty big deal. So I got into this in 2012 and it's only gotten more prevalent since then in terms of the media talking about it and parents talking about it. Um, The CDC estimates that there's 1.6 to 3.6 million um, sport-related concussions per year in the United States alone, um, and you know, the more we learn about concussion on a year-by-year year basis, the more we're identifying it, and the more that we're educating the community, and it's being identified in the community, so it, it kind of snowballs, um, it seems.
1: So, a huge problem. Getting a ton of ton of uh, publicity uh, in, in pro sports as well, and now it's sort of trickling down to youth sports and amateur sports, and I guess this is triggering a bigger question of whether or not parents allow their kids to actually play things like football. Um, but yeah, you, got, you guys are seeing some of this?
2: Um, well, not so much in Texas yet, I would <laughs> say. But, I mean, nationwide, there's a, there's a number of groups that are, you know, rallying to save youth football um, because of various reasons. And there's a lot of communities that just don't have enough kids to field teams Do you think that's
1: because of this understanding of what what, what is now happening and what the risks are for concussions? I do. Okay.
2: I think that's a big part of it. I mean, that might not be the only reason, but...
1: Okay. So we're going to take a step back here and just go go from the very start. But what is, and I think this is very poorly understood, I I don't know if I would have a very good definition for you, but what is a concussion?
2: All right. So I'm going to describe it to you like I describe it all day long to the parents in my clinic and, and the kids that come to see me. So a concussion happens when your brain shakes inside your skull. So your skull, your brain sits inside your skull, it's surrounded by fluid and it can move back and forth. So when you are hit either by a direct or indirect force, meaning you don't have to be hit in the head, you can just have a hard body hit, it can cause your brain to shake inside your skull. And when that happens, it affects all of your brain cells. So we each have about 100 billion brain cells, and all those brain cells have a cell membrane that is designed to keep certain chemicals inside. In this case, that would be potassium, and certain chemicals outside, which in this case would be calcium. And when the brain shakes hard enough, all of those brain cells start to twist and stretch, and that cell membrane becomes very thin, and there's that exchange of potassium and calcium. And so immediately, your brain recognizes there's something wrong, and kicks into that healing or recovery mode. And from that moment on, that's that's where we step in and, and track the kids from from the moment of injury back to healing, what we would determine being healed.
1: That's that's awesome. And these are the, the concussion is associated with a number of symptoms. Mm-hmm. So someone gets a concussion, they're gonna report that they have experienced x y and z what are the what are the main ones
2: well the most common is headache Um, not everyone gets a headache but i think it's something like 80 percent of of athletes report a headache dizziness nausea fogginess sensitivity to light and noise those are big ones there can be sleep disturbance um, mood changes cognitive difficulties like difficulty concentrating is one that we hear quite often
1: okay um, so we're going to sort of start at the, at the, at the front here. Um, so a player's on, and we'll get to like a, a little bit of a case example. It's, I know it's a funny one that we had recently with a, with a kid here in Frisco, but so there's a kid, let's say he's playing football and he gets hit in the head um, and not sure if he loses consciousness, but he comes onto the sideline and he's experiencing these sorts of symptoms. Talk to me just about sideline testing. I know me and you have talked about the SCAT test before, but what is that? Is it valid? How do you assess a kid from right at the beginning on the side of the field?
2: So the SCAT-5 is what we're, we're now on, and that's definitely the most widely used sideline assessment tool.
1: And that's sideline concussion assessment tool, exactly. SCAT, S-C-A-T.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, SCAT-5 was redone from scat three so there's no scat four they skipped it okay um it's a little bit more user-friendly uh they've made a number of stylistic changes to it so it's definitely most widely used but in some cases you don't even need to get that far so you want to look for signs of concussion was there loss of consciousness any level of disorientation or confusion or amnesia. And if you have those signs, that's a pretty clear indicator. If you're unsure, you can start going through a measurement like the SCAT, and so that will include a cognitive assessment. That's going to include a list of the symptoms that you ask the athlete to go through and and report. I think what's happening more and more, especially on the high school level and below, is that if there's any indication that a concussion has happened, m- most kids, kids are just getting yeah, mm-hmm. And so the full scat's not being used, but it, on the collegiate level, the professional level, they're going to want to go through a, a more in- detailed... Yeah, and assessment.
1: I mean, we were at that meeting at the start of the year for Frisco with all the team docs there, and we sort of said, yeah, if you think you have to examine a kid for a concussion, he's immediately out. But then it's sort of like, what's the utility of having these tests there? You know,
2: that's a good question.
1: Yeah. So I, I wasn't sure about that anyways. What are the warning symptoms? So, you know, the, well, first of all, there's concussion and then there's traumatic brain injury or TBI. And I know in this one paper that I read of yours here, you refer to it as a mild TBI or an MTBI. Is that, is that a good, a good, way to call it or is that those used synonymously or what's the what's the story there
2: so they have been so in terms of brain injury there's mild moderate and severe and concussion falls into the mild traumatic brain injury category Um, and so we've used them synonymously for years there's been some recent conversation in the field that maybe we shouldn't maybe we should consider them differently Um, and so you'll see it either way you'll see mild traumatic brain injury or concussion
1: so what are the, what are the warning symptoms? So what are things that would make a parent say, or a athletic therapist or a team doctor say, this kid needs to go to the hospital or for further neuroimaging or, or whatnot?
2: So the big things that I, I would say, usually if there's loss of consciousness, vomiting, immediate vomiting, seizure activity, those are the things that would be an immediate cue. Um, during assessment, if there's cervical pain that, you know, the physician or athletic trainer doesn't think is just. Muscle pain, um, numbness, tingling, weakness in the extremities. Those are all signs. Um, a brief neuro exam, if anything is abnormal.
1: Yeah. And then you might think about sending them to ER for maybe a CT or... Right. And an the MRI. only purpose
2: oh, of right. that would be to rule out if there's anything Hemorrhage more significant or, going yeah. on.
1: Okay. So, I mean, not not everyone that gets knocked out on the field needs to go to the emergency department for a CT, obviously. Right. Yeah. Okay. So... You've diagnosed this kid as having this concussion now. Um, what's the next step? So in, I know what it is here, but mm-hmm. but so so just to give you guys some background, Erin and her team has set up this concussion program at the Star in Frisco. And you guys have a clinic on Monday mornings.
2: We have a clinic five days a week now. Five
1: days a week. But mm-hmm. I guess Monday morning is where the Friday Night Lights players end up. So right. I, I send you a text on Friday and I say, I've got a player for you and he comes to see you on, on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. What happens then?
2: Uh, so we, I do my evaluation okay. as a neuropsychologist. If he was just injured on Friday, we're not going to be starting any actual treatment that day. Um, but I go through my evaluation, I, I document everything, and I give them a plan to follow for the rest of the week. So I usually set a behavioral plan that's going to help them get through the first week and hopefully reduce their overall recovery time
1: okay I want to just take a step back there for a second what are the risk factors so what puts you at risk of developing a concussion obviously we know football ice hockey soccer anything what are the main sports obviously well the in terms sport of sports, type is a, is a right. risk for so getting... contact
2: collision sports okay you're more at risk but everyone has individual risk factors um, so some of the constitutional risk factors, unfortunately being a female is a risk factor. So females are more prone to concussion and they they tend to have more complicated recoveries. Okay. Um, I,
1: I was reading a bit about that and yeah. they, maybe they were, weren't sure whether or not that was related to their predisposition for having a higher rate of migraines. Is that right or no?
2: That, so that's one theory. That's the theory okay. I tend to believe in. And it, it, all goes back to hormones, hormone fluctuation. And, yeah. Um, yeah. We're more, you know, more prone to migraines. So, so being a female, um, history of migraines. So, if you're you're a high school kid who gets migraines, or your mom gets migraines, if you're someone who gets motion sickness, any uh, history of learning disability or ADHD, ADD, um, these are things that you know, whatever you bring to the table with concussion, is probably going to be a little bit worse while you're recovering. So these are the risk factors we look for. And that's why it's an important when they come to see me, the first thing I do is sit down with the kids and the parents and talk through all of this, get their medical history, their biopsychosocial history to understand what do we need to watch for over the next week?
1: Okay. What about um, previous concussions? Mm-hmm. So this is a huge unknown, I suppose. You know, when is when is too many concussions? So if you've had Two concussions, should you stop playing football? Three, four, five, you know, tell me when to stop. If you, you if know, you when... ask
2: 10 different doctors, you're going to get 10 different answers. Right. But, but here's the reality of it. We know so much more now than we did 10 years ago. And so there's old literature that says if you get one concussion, you're more vulnerable to keep getting concussions. Now that we know how to treat concussions and we understand how to determine healing, that's not necessarily true. So our recidivism rates have dropped dramatically when we put them through our program and really track their healing and recovery. So for each kid, because parents ask me all the time, "What? How many is too many?" They've already had two. It's on a it's on an individual basis. So it, you know, how often are they getting concussed? How complicated are the recoveries? It, are they getting concussed with much less force? These are the things that we look for to determine do we have to start talking about retirement?
1: Right. Okay. So that brings us to this important point that I think a lot of people don't understand. And this is deviating from what's traditional here. And that is that concussion is treatable. You yes. can get better from this. Yes. And you guys can help do that.
2: Ac- yes, absolutely. And
1: that's part of what we're going to talk about and why you're here and, and explaining what that is. Cause I mean, I, just on an anecdotal level, I was telling you this before, but I grew up playing rugby and played at a reasonable level and, I, we didn't know anything about this. So I told you this story earlier, but I remember at one point driving home with my buddy who ended up going on to be a professional rugby we, rugby player in Europe. We both played for the uh, Canadian under 21 team together, but he was my buddy and we used to drive to training and to all of our games together and so on. And I remember pulling the car over on the side of the road one day coming back from a game because he needed to vomit on the side of the highway because he had been hit in the head during the game about an hour or two earlier and wasn't feeling good. And I stopped stopped the car. He got out. He vomited for a little bit on the sideline. I asked him if he was okay. He got back in, and then I drove him home and dropped him off and sort of said, hey, I'll see you on Tuesday when I pick you up for practice. And that was it. And, of course, I picked him up on Tuesday, and, you know, we went on from there. We didn't have these con- concussion centers to go to or to be evaluated and right. just because nothing was known really. We didn't – what were you going to do, go and get an, an X-ray of your head? Or, we I mean, didn't,
2: the we, reality still is most – of these kids recover within right in seven to ten days or so yeah. and you know we like to think that our early intervention and getting them on the right behavioral plan and giving them the return to learn plan and the academic support really helps with that but historically looking back you know people do just recover from this
1: so tell us what you guys are doing here differently so part of this plan that you've brought from Pittsburgh is this individualized approach I'll 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 call it where this is not a homogenous disease. This is not a one-size-fits-all kind of your concussion is the same as his concussion is the same as my concussion. Every concussion is different. And I suppose you have this versus the clinical interview, which we'll talk about. Then you go into this vestibular ocular motor screening, and then we've got the impact testing. So... Johnny arrives to see you on Monday morning. He's had this injury. He was knocked out on the football field. Tell us just a little bit about this interview. I know you touched on it here briefly.
2: So if you were to come in Monday morning in my clinic, I would typically have the kid take their impact test, which takes about 25 minutes. When they're done with that, sit the family in the room, talk to them for usually about 30, 40 minutes, take their whole history, understand what happened with the injury, what's happened since then, um, go through risk factors, medical history. Uh, I do an exam with them, which includes the vestibular ocular motor screen or the VOMS, and then we go through the neurocognitive test data. And at the end of that, um, we put it all together, and I talk to them about give them education, pathophysiology, you know, education about what they should do from there. How are we going to support this kid academically that week? What they should do from a behavioral perspective in terms of their sleep and hydration and nutrition. Um, and and typically I say okay I'll see you back in a week you know the first seven days it's it's very difficult to do treatment unless you're doing medication and that's a that's a, another piece of this which I obviously don't do as a neuropsychologist
1: so there's treatment there's medical treatments for these kids as oh, well yeah
2: there are medications not everyone needs them okay um, what
1: are those do you know
2: well yeah, I do know of course you do. <laughs> So the the two most frequently used medications, I would yeah. say, um, would be amitriptyline for headaches and sleep dysregulation, sleep problems, um, and then amantadine is probably even more widely used. So okay. Are you familiar with amantadine?
1: I think so. So I'm, it's I'm not going to tell you what it is in case I okay. Blow I'll tell it, you what right. it is.
2: It's actually an uh, it's an old it's an antiviral. Okay. Um. So it's prescribed for the flu and it's prescribed in Parkinson's disease. Okay. So it's dopaminergic.
1: I'll I'll tell you that I was right. Oh great! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, right.
2: so when you give a kid with concussion a mantidine, it can help them with focus it can help reduce headaches um, but not everyone's appropriate for that
1: right okay um okay so who decides whether they get these drugs
2: uh well they're treating provider would. so in my case I'm a neuropsychologist you know like can I you, said can you prescribe these I cannot prescribe them I have a physician partner okay. that I work with so, so you guys So our program is neuropsychologist, physical therapist, and physician. We all work together. And that's really what we brought from Pittsburgh. It's that idea of the team approach. So everyone kind of looks under the hood through a different lens. Um, The medications come into play. You know, nobody really must put their kids on medication if you don't have to. Sure. So we usually give it a week, have them follow the plan behaviorally. At the the week point, come back and say, okay, do we need to do a, a physical therapy intervention? If the kid is really struggling, which we do see sometimes, then we would probably start to have the conversation about, could medications help?
1: And as you said, most of these kids get better within seven days.
2: Well, I should probably shouldn't, you shouldn't quote me on that. Because no, that's what I, I thought it was, but I think so, the no, prolonged it is.
1: So, one is 21 days. Right, so that's what right? we
2: consider protracted recovery. But yes. again, the older research says most of these people are going to recover in seven to 10 days, and clinically, we truly see a little bit longer than that. Um, And so I would say it's more like 14 days for most kids from time of injury to time to return. Okay. Um, But then you're going to get that subset, that 20 to 30% that are going to take longer than that.
1: Okay. And are those, is that a more serious concussion? Not
2: necessarily. It can be a more complicated concussion. Okay. And a lot of that is dependent upon their risk factors. So if you're a kid who gets three migraine headaches a year and you get a concussion, you might then be getting three migraine headaches a week.
1: Right. And so it's okay.
2: hard to get to where you need to be.
1: Okay. So that is the interview part. And then you go into part two of your of your um, clinical approach here, and that's the vestibular ocular motor screening. So tell us about this, and I also want to ask you about this convergence insufficiency and visual accommodation.
2: Okay. So the, the vestibular ocular motor screen is called the VOMS. That was developed in Pittsburgh um, by... Vestibular physical therapist and muca who is Kayla's mentor.
1: So we just break it down: vestibular, yeah. inner ear. That's more balance. If you've got dizziness or vertigo or something, I think of that as being a problem with the inner ear. Is that, oh, is that correct?
0: It's part of it. Yes. Okay.
1: So vestibular is sort of balance. Ocular is obviously you, right. So here, so here's size. the thing: a
2: lot of a lot of people who are testing or who might think they're testing for vestibular, are really doing the old balance testing. So best testing, bringing out the foam pad. That balance testing, we are not. We don't expect to see anything abnormal past, what, five hours? or mm-hmm. I mean, so when you get a kid three days later and you're doing strict balance testing in the office, if it looks abnormal, you're probably not really picking up on a balance problem. You're probably picking up on like an unstable knee or ankle or something. Right, OK. So this vestibular ocular motor screen is really looking at the eye movements. Um, And I can like, I mean, Kayla can explain that much better than I can, but I'm screening to see if there's any observable abnormality or if they're symptomatic in doing that. And that tells me if they might need to go see Kayla or, you know. Got it.
1: So, I mean, I know a little bit about this because you learn the 12 uh, nerve exam when you're in medical school. And part of this is testing convergence and visual accommodation. So- How is it different, or what are you looking for when you do it?
0: So what you're looking at is you're looking at cranial nerve testing. Yeah. So I take that a step further, and I look at is it a peripheral nerve injury, is it cranial nerve injury, and what exactly are we looking at? So I don't want you to think of uh, the VOMS as just a solely visual or vestibular screen. It's a visual and vestibular abnormalities that we're looking for that we're trying to capture because the eyes are so important to the vestibular system as well so that's why we include some of the visual abnormalities that we're seeing
1: and it's i'm just reading here from the aaron's paper it's estimated that 90 percent of concussed individuals presented with visual vision related symptoms in a clinic setting are later diagnosed with ocular motor dysfunction so it's huge
2: yeah so if you take um Certain components of the bombs, it's like a ninety percent right sensitivity at identifying concussion. So it's a great
1: way of of identifying a person that's suffered a concussion. And
2: yes, and it's a great way when you have the kid that comes in a week later and says, "I feel great. I'm totally symptom free. Tell that he's lying. I'm ready to go." Well, let me tell you, when you really put them to the test with that, if right. there's anything that's not right there, it's going to come out. Okay. And even if they say, "No, I'm fine," you can you can see it
1: because that's. I've been reading through these papers over the last few days, and that's one of the big things that I'm sort of getting to understand here is a lot of the time, first of all, it's the wrong questions to be asking. Hey, how do you feel? Yeah, hey, I feel fine, right. you know, whatever. But a lot of the kids that tell you that they feel fine are not fine. So even though you might not have a headache anymore, your brain has not recovered. And I think being able to identify that through your approach and these, we are talking about impact testing and these other test scores that we can get or how they deviate from baseline maybe you can you will be able to tell them hey you know what you're actually not fine
2: right and you know we deal with a lot of high school kids and high school kids are a little sneaky so (laughs) so they come in and they fill out their symptom sheet and they say zero on everything zero headache so when I then go in the room I go through every single symptom and the first thing I say was well when was your last headache "Uh, last night and it's now 9 a.m. so no you don't have a zero on your symptom scale you just do in this moment um, so yeah, you really have to get in there and ask them very specific questions.
1: Okay. So, so you go through that, you've got this oculomotor testing done, and then this is, the, I want to ask you about this as well. This is the neurocognitive testing and the test that you guys use is the impact, correct? Correct. Tell us what that stands for and what it is.
2: So impact stands for immediate, uh, post. Yep. As immediate. Po- oh my gosh. <laughs> What does it stand for? You have it in front of you.
1: <laughs> I think it's Immediate Post-Concussion <laughs> Assessment Tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? That's it. Mm-hmm. So,
2: yeah. it was, so it was developed in Pittsburgh, even though it sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about, um, by Mark Lovell and Mickey Collins, who the former director of that program and the current director of that program, okay. along with Joe Maroon back in the um, early 2000s. Um, So it's based on our traditional neuropsychology paper and pencil-based tests, which are quite cumbersome to do on a repeated basis with with concussed athletes. Um, It breaks down into four composite scores. We look at verbal memory, visual memory, visual motor speed, which is processing speed, and reaction time. Um, so I get raw data on how they're performing and then these composites. And so the way it's designed is that you give it to them at baseline, so before they're injured, and then we can compare their post-injury test to baseline. So
1: let's talk about that for a second because, I mean, here in Frisco, all of these Frisco ISD students have gone for a baseline impact test, right. which is hugely you know, beneficial to, to you and I because we have their baseline. So right. we know how they should be performing. But what about someone who hasn't had a baseline test?
2: I see lots of kids that don't have them. So, um, you know, there's normative data that I would look at. I would look at their age or education. Is it reliable? Um, I mean, fairly so. You know, yeah. we're not looking for this. So first of all, this isn't an IQ test and there's no definitive number that we want them to get to. But based on if they have any learning disability, their grades, their test scores, I can pretty reliably estimate where they're supposed to be. Okay. And there are other measures that we can add in as needed if things aren't looking right
1: so just tell us i know this is a computer-based neurocognitive test mm-hmm. what is how does it work
2: so they, they sit down. Um, yeah. The benefit to doing it in a clinic is we put you in a quiet room, shut the door. You know, the baseline testing isn't usually in an optimal environment. It's usually in a, they'll take half the football team and load them into the computer lab. Okay. So you can imagine what that environment is like. Yeah. Um, so having them in the clinic in a quiet environment, they start going through the symptoms. So it asks them all the list of 21 symptoms and asks them to rate on a scale of zero to six if they have that symptom or not. And then it goes into the, there's different modules. So it's broken down into different subtests. So you, you sit down, it gives you the instructions and it gives you a little example. And then it launches into the test. For kids who are not concussed, it takes about 25 minutes to get through from start to finish. Okay. It takes a little bit longer if they're having
1: so sp- you'll, issues. So you'll start with this. You'll have them come in and that'll be the first thing that they go for.
2: Usually. I mean, so like today I saw a kid this morning who was injured at eight o'clock last night. You know, uh, last week I saw a kid who literally got hurt in the morning during soccer practice. It was in my office three hours later. She's okay. not going to – I'm not going to make her take an impact test.
1: Right. Okay. So after you've done this, this I guess this concludes your first initial assessment. So Maybe those are not the assessment pieces. Mm-hmm. Right. So now this is this is – you're using this data now to put them into a category. Is that is that accurate or is that – because I know you have your seven headings of what – sort of predominates your symptoms right i mean i guess if you had
2: to really break down what i was doing then then yes it's it's a little more fluid i know when you say it like that it's a little more fluid in actual practice so you know when you think about concussion most people think about the four categories of symptoms so physical symptoms cognitive symptoms sleep symptoms and mood symptoms that's how we've talked about it for years and years um and this was probably back like 2012 ish um, there's a paper that came out of Pittsburgh. We were seeing a lot of these kids. We started seeing them earlier. So within 24 to 72 hours, which was different than in previous years. And we had a hard time, you know, they all looked kind of the same in the first couple of days. So they ran some statistics on that and they found that in the first seven days, there's really like this fifth factor, which is this global like cognitive migraine. These kids are just they have headaches, they're tired, they can't concentrate the first week. And then after that first week, we could really start seeing these pathways that people would end up going down. And so we call them trajectories or clinical profiles. And, and we identified six unique profiles. Um, but, but the problem is people very rarely come in just fitting one profile. Okay. So most of the time they're layered on top of each other. So like and, most
1: things in medicine. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so before we go on, I want to talk about this because I found this was interesting. This concept of sa- sandbagging your test. Yeah. So for for anyone listening that doesn't know this what this is is I don't expect you you would this is a concept of if you're taking a baseline impact test or one of these tests to measure your cognition uh, or these neurocognitive tests it's purposely performing poorly on the on the test so you have a low baseline so when you do get concussed during the season even though your test scores might be lower they're going to be Similar to you having sandbag your initial test. Correct. So you get let back. Return to play is going to be much easier for you because you purposely scored lower on the test at your baseline.
2: Yeah. And there's been a number it's of professional athletes. It's incredible athletes.
1: that this is actually a thing.
2: Well, there, there have been professional athletes who have admitted to it. Right. Like Like big names who have admitted doing that.
1: I could probably name who those laugh mates are. Uh,
2: maybe. So the interesting thing is, there's this really weird phenomenon in North Texas, which I'm sure you've noticed. Is the bar here is really high for academics, and there's a lot of competition. So yep. I I haven't seen a lot of that. I've more seen kids who are score so high on their baseline that it's like it's hard to even get back to that.
1: Is, <laughs> it's the opposite of mm-hmm. sandbagging. So, but but based on the because we've actually like pretty much everything in medicine these days, we've studied sandbagging and it's a hard thing to do. So one study here I showed people were, they got 75 college aged athletes and they told them, we want you to try and sandbag on this test. And even more so, we're going to give you a monetary incentive. We're going to pay the people that are the best at sandbagging. So everyone is going to try and sandbag. Only 11% could actually do it. mm mm-hmm. So it's very it's very well, difficult to do this.
2: There's built-in validity indicators, sure, in the
1: baseline. So you know when someone is purposely sandbagging.
2: Yeah, well, we know when it comes up invalid, and and there's sometimes when I actually have kids that come in where it hasn't triggered these validity checks. So it comes, it says it's a valid baseline, um, and these are kids who are you know A and B students, they're in AP classes, but on their baseline test, maybe their processing speed says they're at the third percentile.
1: So that's not right.
2: I don't know. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't want them to just get back to the third percentile. I tell their parents, I don't know what happened here, but this is not a valid indication of their ability.
1: Okay. And that's, so that's a good thing to know.
2: Yeah. And that's why it's important, too, you know, to go see someone who understands the test.
1: Sure. Because if someone scored 3% of the test, you might say, this kid's got a big problem. We better well, keep them we... out of sport for a while. Well, yeah. Yeah. Which might not be the case because this is a completely invalid test. Right. Yeah. Okay, um, okay. so from here, you, you've developed these clinical tra- trajectories, they're called. So rather than character, and I think this is the most important thing that you guys are doing differently now than what I was just as growing up as an athlete was used to. When you got concussed, it was sort of like sit out for a couple of weeks, maybe less than that, until your headache is gone, and then you're probably pretty good to go. That was that's the summary of how management of concussions was, you know, fifteen years ago when I was it's coming through and playing still sports. Still happening
2: in yeah, some areas. Not course. too far from here.
1: So, so this is it. This is rather than categorizing concussion as a homogenous disease of just one size fits all, you guys are now developing these clinical trajectories, which adds heterogeneity to it. So it's a it's 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 a individualized process for treatment. And that's what we're going to get on to next is because, I mean, if you if you ask a lot of sports medicine physicians, how do you treat a concussion? They'll say you tell the kid not to play sports and take it easy for a week or two. Right. You know, we don't know about what you guys are doing and how. And as you said at the start of this, you can treat a concussion. You can like any injury, you can you can treat a person until they're better. And then maybe they're at a baseline status where they're not going to be predisposed to developing another concussion or they're not going to be at, let's say a greater risk than they were prior to their first concussion. If they're treated appropriately, is that, is that, am I correct? Yeah, You're right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you've done this baseline. You usually, you you said to me, you usually send the kid home for a week.
2: Well, uh, not home. I mean, I say, I'm going to see you back in a week, you see him back in a week, but they're going to school. I mean, I will tell you when I started doing this in 2012, that's when I started doing only concussion. We had kids who were on homebound education for months. Um, I haven't had a kid on homebound in over three years, so kids are missing two days of school, maybe maximum. The kids that are really struggling, otherwise, we're getting them back in that environment and getting them exposed to. Normal and that's life. part of this
1: exertion, I suppose. Well, no, a little bit. That's,
2: so that's just part of that active recovery. We want to okay. we want to activate their.
1: So you don't want them sitting at home in a dark room.
2: Absolutely not.
1: No, this is the opposite to what it was. A few years ago, I suppose, when when that's what we thought you would do. Yeah. You'd do. Don't go no, no bright rooms. lights. Like just I mean, think about easy. what it would no be like. To your brain. Think
2: about what it would be like if you were told to go sit in a dark room for and you know right. a week. Okay. Right. I mean, you'd feel Terrible. awful.
1: Yeah, you're gonna feel more depressed than you already do. Exactly. Concussion I've to sit mm-hmm. out from football. Um, okay, so so hold on. Let's take it. I want to just as an anecdote here because this is an interesting one, and I know you think it. So Friday night, we're at the. And I mean, I, I had to write it down the other day. My team's doing very well. Where I think we're about, we haven't lost yet. They're thirteen and zero, and we're going to the. So first it was districts. We won that. Yep. Then we were by district champions. Then we went to. I might screw this up. I think it was areas. So we won that. Now we're area champs. Now we've got the sem, the regional semifinals, and that then the regional finals. Regional semifinals I think is on Friday. And then we've got the state semifinals, and then the state championships. So Mm -hmm. we're four way wins away from being state champs. So, anyways, on Friday in the, I'm going to screw this up. The area finals, the star of our team, uh, and he. This kid is headed to a college scholarship for sure, and he's a junior, I think now. Um, He. I was actually on the far sideline treating a team on the uh, treating a player on the other team because they didn't have a team doctor. They were from out of town, so he had a knee injury. And then all of a sudden, the, I see a kid on our team goes down, so I run out, and he was actually knocked out for a second, and he had some fencing postures. So, tell us about a little bit about that. Right. You think so, he 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 seized maybe?
2: Well, so you, you'll see it a lot. Like if you watched. If you watch professional football on Sundays, you'll sometimes see the guys go down on the field and their arms stick out at a weird angle, and so that's that's a fencing response, and that's that's seizure activity, a sign of seizure activity. From what I know about this kid, is it was extremely brief. Sure. So what I heard was if you weren't watching him specifically, and I actually saw the film.
1: I think the whole stadium of about 10,000 people was watching him. Well, well no, our I, team, don't, I don't think so because the
2: ball went by him. And so I think everyone was you watching hammered, the ball. yes. I, I know. I saw it from several different angles. Yeah. But, it, you know, if you blinked, you would have missed it, but it was there.
1: Yeah. So this kid goes down and I was out there within about, say, 30, 40 seconds after it happened. But he had been knocked out for, you know, maybe it was only a second. But he was lying on the bat on his back. He was a little bit confused. It was clear that he had sustained some sort of a head injury. Uh, we, we we checked him out while he was there. Someone was mobilizing his neck. We figured out that he didn't have anything wrong with his neck, so he was moving his arms okay. We got him up, took him to the sideline, and you know, I assessed him on the sideline. He was totally with it on the sideline, but he knew, you know, I would say you had had your bell rung. That's what the term was when we were coming through. And it was clear that he had had his bell rung and he was a little bit agitated and, you know, a little bit worried about it. But I talked to him for a while. He didn't have any symptoms. He remembered the score. He remembered what day it was, all, all those sorts of questions that we asked them um, for the scat test. And, and then I texted you and I said, I've got a player for you. He's going to come on Monday. Um, and at that point, you're sort of, everyone was, was, the, uh, had bad looks on their faces because we were worried that s- the star player was out but at that point you would think this: this here's a guy he's been knocked out on the field he's got a concussion he's going to miss a period of time is that is that safe to say or this clearly wasn't the yes, case with that's this guy what I
2: would think so, so So he actually went and got a CT scan that night okay which was fine right it was unremarkable
1: yeah I didn't th- I didn't think he probably I they didn't were, think it was indicated they were but, going back but, and
2: forth I think, you know, parents were a little worried. Sure. Because they had seen it.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: Um, so they did that. Yep. Comes in Monday morning, did mm-hmm. our whole thing. Everything looks fine. To the point in which mom said, and this is a and family. And you had had baseline impact testing on him. I had baseline this. impact testing on him. Um, this was a family who the older sister or younger sister, someone had had gone through concussion before, had a very bad experience with it. Like this family had been through it before, and these were not, you know – they weren't pushing either way, mom and dad. But but what mom said to me was, had I not seen him, had I not seen what he looked like when he hit the ground, based on his behavior, I, I wouldn't have believed he was injured. Right. And usually, parents are very very upset, right? Oh, they they really pick up on these these subtleties. So he looked totally fine on Monday, and um, you had
1: him do the impact testing.
2: He did the impact and testing. That was compared I to did his the baseline vestibular testing. ocular testing. I mean, everything looked normal. I, I did some extra balance testing. Um,
1: so this is a, this is a good one though, because here's a kid who's maybe been knocked out on the field and comes in two days later and is completely normal. Mm-hmm. So does he have a concussion?
2: Well, based on what happened on the field, I would say a concussion happened. Yes. Like So when we talk about that pathophysiology in the brain, like yeah. there was brain disturbance there.
1: But he's just not exi- exhibiting any sort of sustained symptoms. Right. So he's, would well, you... This is the hard one, right? Because it's
2: so to so let him
1: play if he has a game on Monday night? No.
2: Well, my answer would be no. So, you know, in Texas, there's very specific laws, but really it's based on just best practices of this return to play protocol. So progressive exertion, physical activity to make sure that they're not getting symptomatic. So following concussion symptoms can wax and wane. So even though he looked fine Monday morning, he still hadn't been in school, right? So we needed to make sure he was able to tolerate the classroom environment you know use his brain and then move his body with no symptoms right. so his athletic trainers put him through
1: this return the to play. return to play protocol and that might be a little bit expedited in this case because the kid is not exhibiting any sort of symptoms mm-hmm. okay
2: The idea is to make sure they can fully exert without symptoms before we put them into contact and having okay. them take some contact before they go back into a game
1: okay. So, I mean, I would have never have thought, having seen this guy, that he was going to play the following week, which he did, and he was absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. But I guess, so he goes back to school. You say, I'm going to I'm going to see you in a couple of days. I gave,
2: or... him, I gave him a note for school with some accommodations. I said, use it if you need it. He never needed it. I mean, we, you know, I was in, co- here's the thing, though. This is back to that team approach. I was on daily communication with his athletic trainer. Right. So I knew what was going on with him every single day leading up to that. Um, and he was fine.
1: Yeah. You, is, this, is this, this isn't, you would say that this is a, not the typical case?
2: Not the typical case at all, but there have been cases. I've seen cases where, you know, there's, there's a theory behind this loss of consciousness thing that it's almost like a, a hard reset. Like you hard reset your computer, you know, your brain needs time to rest. But it's like sometimes when that loss of consciousness happens, it just turns around very quickly. And there's research that supports that.
1: Okay. So maybe something that we thought was the, the most alarming thing is not... As alarming as we might have once thought. That's right. Thought. So
2: when you have loss of consciousness on the field, everyone's going to freak out. Sure. I, I mean, it's just it doesn't look good. Rightly so, a little bit. Right. Right. You know? But yeah, clinically, we we see it turn around pretty quickly.
1: Okay. Good. So so, and, and I mean, he was cleared, right? He 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 I played so. the he following played. week, right? <laughs> yeah, he was he was great. So I mean, this this one wasn't your typical concussion case that you see. This is a guy who was knocked out on the field, required no treatment. Was absolutely normal two or three days later, and played exactly a week later and was absolutely fine.
2: I think he was normal that night. It sounds like, I mean, yeah. it re- literally feels it sounds like he came off the field, he settled down, the adrenaline got out of his sy- symptom system, and he seemed fine.
1: All right. So, what's give us what's typical then? Give us the usual. So, let's say player B now gets knocked out, comes off, has a headache, is dizzy on the sideline. Can't remember who scored last in the game, and then he comes to see you. What, what's he like when, he, when yeah, you the, see him on Monday morning?
2: That's a hard question because there's no typical. Right. I mean, everyone's different. I will tell you that if they're dizzy on the field, there's there's research that says dizziness on the field is the number one predictor that they're going to have a protracted recovery. Okay. So for physicians who are on the sideline, always ask about dizziness. Um, That indicates it may take three weeks or longer. And once they come to see us and they're having these symptoms, that's when we start talking about what kind of intervention are we going to use. Will it just be a behavioral modification plan? Will it be academic accommodations? Will it be um, physical therapy? Do they need to speak to the physician about medications? There's a lot we can do.
1: So you will see them then, you've done your assessment, and you say, I'm going to see you back in seven days?
2: It's usually about a week.
1: Do you, you don't do any treatment though for those first seven days?
2: I give that, I do always give them a behavioral plan. Sometimes I talk to them about supplements, depending on what.
1: So, what sort of supplements?
2: Supplements to help with sleep or with headaches or nausea. So, um, a lot of times for headaches, I'll suggest like magnesium and vitamin B2, which is taken from migraine protocol. Okay. Um, some people would do well with melatonin to help them sleep. If they're really nauseous, doing some ginger or peppermint, just things you can get over the counter.
1: Okay. And then they come back in seven days and that's when treatment starts. So -hmm. maybe they're still exhibiting symptoms. They say they've still had a headache. It's been on and off for the last seven days. And that's when you guys are going to come up with this individualized plan that's going to determine what sort of modalities you use and how you treat them. Right. Okay. And that's where Kayla comes in. Yep. Good. So that's sort of part one here. You guys are going to come back for another series where we're going to talk about what treatment of a concussion entails, and then we're going to go through this whole return to play algorithm. Does that sound good? Because this is like instead of just sitting in a dark room like we used to think you should do, you are going to exert yourself now, and this is exact this concept opposite. Of exact opposite is exertion therapy, mm-hmm. and that's going to con- determine whether or not you are able to go back to the to the field.
0: It definitely helps it doesn't determine because as physical therapists we don't have we're legally not allowed to Participate in the return to play decision-making right now. We can make recommendations. I can tell her hey I think this person needs one to two more visits. They need x y and z But um, we at this time. We're just making considerations and recommendations to the neuropsychologist and the medical team
1: but basically Uh, From what I've read the patient needs to be asymptomatic at rest and asymptomatic when they're on the field with a baseline Neurocognitive test. Is that right? Uh,
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes,
1: and that's what we're gonna get to in part two what you guys do to facilitate them getting better
2: Yes. Yeah,
1: okay good. Well, thanks for coming you guys.
2: Thank you for having us
1: We're gonna see you back here shortly for uh, for part two here Which is gonna focus on the treatment of concussions and return to play so if you're a parent out there you you might have many questions like this in terms of my my kid just had a concussion. When are they okay to go back on the field? How many concussions is too much? Um, considerations with sport, which sports are safer, um, and how to get your kid into to one of these facilities to uh, to get treated appropriately. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. A special thanks to our sponsor, Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Jones. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.